Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. It's December 22nd, and this is our last episode of 2020, and the legislative train we've seen coming down the tracks for the last few weeks has now arrived. And wow, it's big. I'm talking about the year-end funding and COVID relief bill that was approved by Congress yesterday and awaits presidential signature. Although now, how, when, or whether that will happen presents just a little more late-year drama. But back to the bill. And sticking with the train analogy, maybe better than calling it big, we should say it's long, with boxcar after boxcar as far as the eye can see. How long? Well, more than 5,500 pages long is the best answer I can give. By comparison, the text of the $10 trillion Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at congress.gov clocks in at a minuscule 186 pages. So yeah, this thing is a beast of a bill, and it does all sorts of things, including lots of important things in tax. So today, as the dust begins to settle on the bill, we'll do our best to tell you what just happened. To do that, I'm joined by our friends Jennifer Gray and Carol Coolish. So Jennifer, what just happened? What was in this bill? What was this really all about? Remind us big picture. I think the question is what was not in the bill. As you mentioned, it was over 5,000 pages. It was $2.3 trillion and change. The bill was, one, to keep the government open since they had not managed to get the funding for the rest of the fiscal year, which ends on 9-30-21 finished. So accompanying this bill is a seven-day continuing resolution to keep the government open for the next week while they go through and do all the procedural things that they need to do to a 5,600-page bill in order to get it to the president and ready to sign. So that was included. But, you know, I have $1.4 trillion and spending for the government agencies, again, that was to stop a government shutdown that could have happened. It had over $900 billion for COVID, and I predicted back in May there would be another COVID bill, and I, of course, meant that that would happen seven months later. But we had $700 billion for COVID. That included money for unemployment benefits, for business loans. There are also some tax-focused provisions in there. There was money for public transportation. But then included just some cats and dogs. There was some broadband money in there. There was a U.S.-Mexican economic partnership. There was a huge energy innovation plan. And it really, I mean, when you say folks talk about a Christmas tree at the end of the year, it's really what this was. It really just had about everything you can think of on it that was still left around. A lot of folks, of course, did not get what they wanted. But honestly, I think a lot of folks are pretty surprised on how many people did get what they wanted in this. So a little something for everyone. So quick question on the government funding thing. Once they get all this done, get through in this bill to the president signed and implemented, so how long is the government funding then? Are we going to be looking at government shutdown again soon, or how long is it funding for? Well, it's through the fiscal year, so the earliest we should see a government shutdown threatened would be on September 30 of 21. So we're good for the next nine months or so. So we can all breathe a little sigh of relief. At least we are not looking at the prospect of a government shutdown anytime soon. But 930 will be here before we know it, and they'll have to fund the government again. All right, so that's big picture. Thank you, Jennifer. Carol, let's come back to, of course, our topic, tax. There was a lot in tax, right? And what were some of the highlights of tax provisions that were in this bill? John, I think probably the biggest overall highlight is that there was a lot of tax stuff in it. You alluded to this before. The JCT table estimates that there's over $328 billion in overall tax cost of the bill over 10 years. By my count, there are some 70-plus different tax provisions. Some of those tax provisions are COVID-related. Others are not. In the COVID-related pot, 
some of the highlights are that they got the recovery rebates, which are the checks of up to $600 per qualifying taxpayer and child. That's the money that's sent directly to some qualifying people. That's the biggest item in the JCT revenue score, clocking in at around $164 billion. Also, from a tax perspective, COVID-related, a lot of people had been anticipating the clarification that there's no deduction denied by reason of the exclusion from gross income of forgiveness of PPP loans. So you can go ahead and deduct the expenses, notwithstanding some Treasury guidance earlier this year. There's also an extension of the credit for paid sick and family leave. They also made some clarifications and technical improvements, as well as extension of the employee retention credit for the CARES bill. And also, I'm going to put this in the COVID pot because it is temporary. There is a temporary allowance of a full deduction for business meals paid or incurred between the end of this year and January 1 of 2023. Bill is organized kind of odd, but it's not directly a COVID provision, but given that it's temporary and it's been floated as a COVID response thing, I'm going to put it in that pot. In addition to those COVID-related items, the bill addresses expiring provisions, a bunch of provisions that are scheduled to expire at the end of this year. A few of them had other future dates of expiration beyond 2020. Some of those would actually be made permanent, and that's a huge win in those areas. Some of those are the reduced excise tax rate on certain craft beverages, the railroad track maintenance credit, and the reduction in the medical expense deduction floor to 7.5%. And then there was a clump of expiring provisions that would be extended for multiple years. There are some that would be extended for five years, like the look-through rule for related controlled foreign corporations, the new markets tax credit, the work opportunity tax credit, the employer credit for paid family and medical leave. And then there are some that would be extended for three years. And that includes the energy credit with some adjustments to phase-out schedules, as well as the residential energy-efficient property credit with some modifications made to that credit as well. And then there were a bunch of firing provisions that would be extended for one year. Those included some stuff in the energy space, renewables, credit for electricity produced from certain renewable resources, non-business energy property credit, a whole host of different provisions, some of them not energy-related, but a lot of the ones that didn't get extended for longer periods got extended for one year. And then there was a clump of just stuff that I'm going to call miscellaneous tax provisions, modifications to the low-income housing tax credit rate, depreciation of certain residential rental property over 30-year period, expansion of Section 48 energy credit to include waste energy recovery property, and also similar expansion of that credit for offshore wind facilities. So there's just a lot of tax provisions in this bill. I lost track of how many times you said, and then. There were several and thens, Carol, as you went from category to category. Remind me this. How many total tax provisions, roughly, you thought there were in here? I counted over 70, just looking at the JCT revenue table. All right, and taking that JCT revenue table, just coming back to something you said then about how the cost of these provisions, it sounds like then about half of the total cost was on those stimulus checks, and the other 70-plus provisions cost the other half some of them being specifically COVID-related, some of them being extenders, some of them being more than extenders, you know, new policy. I guess if you look at some of these provisions and think about them, there was a little something for people on both sides of the aisle and both sides of the Capitol, the House and the Senate, to get out of this. Is that sort of the dynamic, you think, uh, how this came together? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're right in terms of the numbers, and that's what you tend to see when you have one of these. I think Jennifer referred to it as a Christmas tree bill, as everybody gets to put an ornament on the tree. You know, this is what happened. It, there was a big question as to whether there was going to be much in the way of tax, but once the dam breaks, there's something in there for a lot of different members. 
You're right. I mean, look, this kind of came together quickly because we weren't sure even days before how much tax it would be. And we thought there'd be a little. And we knew all these things were orbiting the bill. And you always wonder how much is actually going to get in. So, Jennifer, back to you then. Maybe this is another really long list, but let me ask the question anyway. Who are the winners here? You know, we'll get the losers in a second, but who are the winners in how this package came together? You could say a lot of people were winners, but, you know, I think if you look at individual taxpayers, I mean, certainly a lot of folks who qualify getting that $600 per person payment, which is technically a tax provision, even though it comes in a check, some changes to EITC, some changes to deductibility and medical expenses, FSA and HSA rules for 2020, dependent care, those sort of things. Those folks who have those uh, dependent care and healthcare FSAs who were not able to use all their money because 2020 was such an odd year um, may have the opportunity to to roll that over and use it next year, which is a change. A lot of things in there for students dealing with taxation of student loan assistance and emergency financial aid they may have received. The real estate industry had a couple things, a change to the 4% floor on the low-income housing tax credit, which of course is something they've been interested in for a while. You know, also seem to keep having trouble with the ADS recovery period changes. There keep seem to be numerous technical issues with drafting. They were able to get yet another one of those fixed. Lots of things in the energy world. The solar energy folks were able to get that step down and expiration delayed by two years. The energy efficient commercial buildings made permanent. And then also sought after changes to the Section 48 credit were in there. There were some changes in there for charitable donations that hopefully will help out some charities in a roundabout way. And then, of course, just a number of permanent extenders. Liquor, beer, and wine industry came out pretty well with permanent extension of that excise tax change that they had been looking for. So, and then I'd say on a very broad scheme with the business community, the uh, you know that change to the PPP loans and how the expenses they paid using those forgiven loan funds are dealt with, I think was a huge, huge issue for them. So that was also addressed. And that one was was pretty back and forth for what we understand as negotiations were taking place. Yeah, there was high drama over how that one was going to play out. And ultimately it came out, I think, in probably about as good a possible outcome as people had hoped. And I guess just one other way to think about winners at the very big picture is all the extenders that got extended. Let's remember, it's been a long time since we've actually extended extenders before they expired and done it retroactively. So the mere fact of getting them done before they expired, I'd put them all in that winner category to some extent. I know some got longer and some got shorter as Carol outlined, but they all kind of won in their own way by just not having to get expired and then wait and hope that Congress would do it retroactively. Okay, Carol, let's get to the fun part. So those are the winners. Who are the losers here? Are there any? Maybe this is the really short list. Did anybody find themselves on the outside looking in here? Well, and I think that's how you would probably characterize, and I hate to use the word loser, but when you just have a bill that's this big where a lot of stuff gets in, I guess it's possible to say that the people who tried but didn't get in, you could say, well, they're going to be disappointed. And in that category of things that people have been pushing for that weren't included in the bill, you know, there'd been a lot of talk about proposals to, to make all the general business credits refundable. There also were some provisions, we talked about some provisions from the CARES Act that were extended, like employee retention credit, but there were also some provisions from the CARES Act that expire at the end of this year that were not extended. Um, one of those, for example, is the temporary increase in the cap on the amount of business interest that can be deduct it. That's the change in, in the ATI limitation. That was just temporary in the CARES Act in order to allow people to deduct more 
business interest this last year, that was not extended. So you could characterize that as a disappointment for those people who have been advocating for an extension of that. And I suspect if there's another COVID relief bill teed up early on in the Biden administration, that people will be pushing hard for those those kinds of things as well. And then, John, going to your point, expiring provisions, you have to look at all of them as winners to some extent because they made it in the bill even though they weren't even dead yet. And oftentimes we wait until things have actually expired and bring them back. But yet from a relative perspective, those that were just extended for one year, they didn't do as well as those that were made permanent or were extended for multiple years. And going back to your train analogy, they've now been decoupled from some of those extenders that were extended for multiple years or made permanent that had really broad and deep support and that often helped move the extenders train forward in recent years. So they may well need to, to couple up with some of the upcoming extenders firing provisions, which I think you're, you're probably going to mention next. Yeah, let's talk about that. But you're right. You're absolutely right. It's a great analogy coming back to it. I hadn't thought about But you know, right. These are decoupled cars and now sitting on the side of the railway waiting for another engine to come along. And sometimes we've seen it could be a long wait and sometimes those engines never come. So, so let me come back to both of you, ask you both this question then, because it's a really interesting one in my view. And I don't know if you agree, but this bill got bigger than I think almost anybody expected. And when that happens, you immediately start to think, okay, well, what does that mean for next year, right? We're going to have a different president next year. We still don't know what control of Congress is going to look like, but we've got other things. There's always something expiring, other things expiring at some point next year. So what are some observations on what you think this means for 2021? Well, John, let me just, because I was talking about the extenders, let me say there there are some things that are expiring in 2022 that might become engines for extenders being acted on in 2021. And those are things like in the TCJA, there's a scheduled change in the treatment of R&E expenses, requiring them to be amortized that would kick in in 2022. TCJA also had provide for a scheduled ramp up in the interest expense limitation. This is the EBIT versus EBITDA change, which would, in effect, unless Congress does something, it would have the effect of further limiting the amount of business interest that can be deducted. Those two things could serve as drivers, because I think there'll be, be a lot of lobbying done in 2021. Those two things could serve as drivers, um, engines for these other expiring provisions that I mentioned that were only extended for one year, they could drive expiring provisions. And I do think at the very least going into next year, there's going to be, even though we've done a late year fiscal stimulus bill for COVID, the Biden administration, I think, will still want to do an additional COVID response early on. And I think the substance of it depends in large part on on whether the uh, Republicans or Democrats are in control of the Senate next year. Jennifer, does that sound right? What do you think about 2021 and beyond? It does. I guess one question I have is if we do see a stimulus bill, which I could see, will there be maybe less pressure to include tax given that this big tax package went forward? And I still know the answer to that. And obviously there's still some things that people are going to want, but they did get a lot here. You know, there's still a couple issues outstanding. Obviously the sort of always the, the pension issues out there. There is this multi-employer pension issue that is a huge challenge that they were trying to get a deal here at the end of the year and we're not able to do that. So uh, perhaps those negotiations will still be going on as that is an ongoing problem. It's not going away. And then, you know, another issue folks had talked about that did not move far in Congress and perhaps just the politics makes it too difficult. But this issue of 
Given the COVID situation and folks working from home and or working from other locations, there was a question of whether there was a role for the federal government there in trying to help some questions among the states of how employees should be taxed when they're not working at their normal locations. So I know there are some thoughts of maybe Congress might get involved in that. They did not. Again, the politics can be complicated with various states having various positions, but that's something else that perhaps could come into play sometime next year. I agree with all those things. Just one other observation I think you both kind of hinted at was the purple scenario. I think we talked about things that they might do. Some of the things we mentioned, you know, the Section 174 expensing, the 163J conversion, the bonus depreciation phase down. And we always thought that that would be a area of common ground that they would come back to next year. And it's interesting whether or not they still will. They might, but whether or not they still have that same impetus to do it now that they've cleaned up so much of these other tax provisions that might have been included in that. So interesting question. Well, Jennifer and Carol, thanks so much for helping us understand how this bill came together and what it might mean. Just one last thought on this topic. Like many of us that do what I do, I was a political science major in college, and with a little hindsight now and a little real-world experience, I find that phrase, political science, ever more curious. As in, who thought that politics was science? You know, measurable and predictable, subject to effective application of the scientific method. But I'm sorry, I've always felt like politics was less like science and more like jazz. You know, unpredictable, spontaneous, one player playing off of another player with the ultimate outcome unknowable until you actually get on stage. So coming back to this bill, I think many of you might look at it and ask, well, how did this happen? So I encourage you to think how this bill played out in that way, a jazz session. And maybe that explains how after months and months of Republicans and Democrats seemingly agreeing on nothing, they could overnight agree on everything. It's often said that Americans really prefer a divided government. That way the two parties can keep one another in check. That divided government leads to more moderate legislation and less spending overall. Well, that's often true, but it's not always true as we learned this week. Sometimes when the parties come together, the dynamic is that nobody gets what they want, but sometimes the dynamic is everybody gets everything they want. And I'm not here to say that either one is better or worse than the other, but it is a reminder that a divided government doesn't always mean less. Well, that's all for this week and all for this year. Obviously, 2020 has been a challenge for all of us in so many ways, both personally and professionally. But in the interest of finding that silver lining, let me just remind you of how we started this podcast all the way back in episode one. Pre-COVID, my life and that of my colleagues here was spent living on airplanes and rushing through airports in the backs of Ubers and in hotel after hotel. That's how we talked about tax legislation and tax policy across the table, or at least across the podium, speaking at some tax policy event. And that all came to an abrupt halt in the spring. So this podcast has given us a way to still talk to you about the topic we hold near and dear, and to still reach so many of you we can't actually get to see. So if you are wondering why I end every episode with the statement, I hope to see you soon, well, that's because I mean it. I hope that someday we will banter about tax policy in person again. But until then, I'm thankful for this podcast. I'm thankful for my colleagues who make it what it is. And I'm thankful for you taking a few minutes every week to listen. So with that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.